when I saw this picture on the internet, I wondered how neat it would be to be in the meeting of the CEO of this company with this motto and this driver who apparently thought he could take a shortcut. On the road to success, there are no shortcuts. This driver thought differently and found out the company was right. I put that picture up there because I want us to think about the fact that there are also no shortcuts when it comes to this adventure of walking with Jesus, especially no shortcuts when it comes to going alone in our journey. It's a together journey, all together, all of God's people walking with Jesus on the road to glory. If we expect to have joy in the journey, then Paul outlines for us two practices very practical practices that need to be lived out, not just talked about in our dealings with each other. The first practice is that we would act like citizens of heaven. Verse 27 is where we begin this morning. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul includes in his letter to the Philippians this challenge to live out the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, right where they live in the city of Philippi. And we could say for us, right here where we live, in Idaho and Utah. Paul uses the word conduct here. The King James Version uses the expression, let your conversation be as becometh godliness. The word conversation has the idea of our daily conduct, the way we live our lives each day. It can include, of course, our words. But the word conduct or conduct has more of a a political flair to it. It's a reminder to the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven while also being citizens of Rome. The city of Philippi was 800 miles away from Rome. But they were declared to be a colony of Rome by Caesar Augustus. The people of Philippi had fought for Caesar Augustus as if they were his military And to honor them, he made them forever citizens of Rome. Way before Paul came to preach there, they were already citizens of Rome. But now Paul is saying to them, live like heavenly citizens. Not just Roman citizens, but as heavenly citizens. He says the same thing, by the way, in chapter 3 of this book, in verse 20. You might want to just look at it real quick. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we live here in Preston, Idaho, or this area, or Utah. We may have come from San Diego, or Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, or Scottsdale, 
uh, Arizona, any number of places, but we're citizens now here. But most importantly, if we know Jesus, we're citizens of heaven. And so a modern way to put this challenge from Paul would be, get your corporate act together and start showing the people of Philippi what it looks like to live like citizens of heaven. Show them what it looks like to have an adventure with Jesus on a daily basis. For you and me together, the message is all of you, all together, live your lives in such a way that the people of Preston and the surrounding area will see what a joy it is to walk with Jesus. Live as citizens of heaven, united together with purpose, and you will make a difference. Earlier in this chapter, four times, verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, Paul talks about the gospel. It's an important subject to him. And now he deals with it again. He told them how important the gospel was to him in those other verses, how much he wants the gospel to spread, and that he's excited that God is using them while he's away in prison, that God is using them to share the gospel. The word gospel is a key word in the book. Just like the word joy or rejoicing. Just like the expression in Christ or in Him. Those phrases come up again and again in the book. They're key words and they go together, don't they? The gospel goes together with joy, which goes together with Christ. And Christ is the source of the gospel and that gospel then brings joy. No wonder we can sing, I have the joy down in my heart. I have the love of Jesus. I have the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. So Paul is reminding them and reminding us, if we take, the, take on this challenge to act like citizens of heaven, then God is going to get the glory and the worth or the value of the gospel is going to become obvious, at least to some who live around us. But for that to happen, we need to take four important steps that Paul outlines for us here. Steps that will demonstrate our all-togetherness in this adventure with and for Jesus. The first step is standing. Notice again, he says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Presenting a strong, unified front to the rest of the citizens of Philippi would mean standing up confidently for the gospel. It would mean not shrinking in fear, not being afraid to open our mouths or to say something of value on behalf of the good news. Paul wanted to remind them, and we need to remember, that the gospel is good news for everyone, not just for Christians. It's the good news for everyone, not just a select few. But in order for that gospel to really shine brightly, we need to stand up and be counted. We need to stand firmly on the foundational truth of the gospel that is presented in Scripture. And that is the theme of Paul's preaching. Too often today we're afraid to stand up for the Lord. We're afraid to proclaim His good news. Now, I understand that we, we know, I'm trusting that you do, 
that this is not our position in Christ, but we feel sometimes like we're standing on shaky ground or we're standing in quicksand or in mud and we can't get out of it and move forward and and be bold and present the gospel. We just can't seem to get any traction. The world and its leader, Satan, loves to have it that way, doesn't he? He doesn't want us sharing the gospel. He'd love to have us have doubt in our minds about the strength and the force of the gospel message. Sometimes we forget Paul's challenge to all of us through his soldier message in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians 6. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul is saying, stand firm in the gospel. Be bold. Be strong. The Internet has lots of interesting pictures I saw this one the other day. This is uh, a new, brand new glass bridge in a place called Xianzu National Park in China. It's 328 feet above the canyon there. It opened the first week in September this year. Two weeks later, two weeks later, one of those people walking across the glass bridge dropped a thermos and shattered one of the glasses. You can see the picture on the screen. The bridge was closed for a short time. It's now opened again. And experts, so-called, claim that there's no reason to fear walking on this bridge. Well, I'm here to tell you, I'm not signing up to go to China and walk on that bridge. You probably aren't either. God would have us know this morning that nothing... And I can't emphasize it strongly enough. Nothing can shatter our confidence in the gospel. Nothing. Paul's own testimony gives us that understanding. And we can claim it as well. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed. Is that your testimony today? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul wants us to stand up for it. To stand firm in it. Second, the second step, striving. Striving together. As we stand strong for the gospel, we also move out with the gospel to reach the lost around us. We contend for the gospel. I take that expression to mean that we move aggressively in our towns and neighborhoods with a confident trust. A trust that believes that as we share the Word of God, God's own powerful Word will change hearts. I want you to hear what God says, not Bill, not somebody else, what God says about the power of His Word. Isaiah 55, verse 11. God is speaking when He says that I, my word will not return to me empty or void. It will accomplish what I send it to do. Isn't that a great promise? What it means is that if I'm using God's word 
not my opinions, not the philosophies of the world, not a lot of trendy modern churches who want to entertain and and give people what they think they want to hear instead of giving them the Word of God. But if I give them the Word of God, something is going to change in their lives. That's the reason we're a Bible church. That's the reason we teach God's Word. That's the reason we preach through a book like Philippians. The Bible is powerful to change hearts. And by the way, that's a reminder for all of us. If you're praying for a lost family member, a neighbor, a friend who doesn't know Jesus, don't quit. Keep giving them the Word of God. Bit by bit, line upon line, keep giving them the Word of God because God's Word is powerful. So don't give up when they walk away from your message. Don't quit when they tell you, I don't want to hear it. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing the all-powerful Word of God. We're going to keep striving together here as Grace Fellowship Church in this holy calling. We're going to keep standing firm. And thirdly, we're going to take another step. It's a very important step, and that is shielding each other from the attacks of our opponents. Paul adds this third step to the challenge to act like citizens of heaven, to shield each other from the attacks of those who are opposed to the message of God's Word. And I think you know there are plenty of people like that. They are opposed to anything having to do with Christianity or the Word of God. When I use the word shielding in the outline, I'm referring to Paul's words, in no way alarmed by your opponents. So Paul uses military-sounding words, standing, striving, opponents. Paul understood the strength of the Roman military. At the time he wrote this letter, he was chained to a Roman soldier. He knew, as many of us who studied history, that the Roman army conquered the then-known world for several reasons. Because they were well-trained, because they knew how to stand their ground, how to attack, how to contend as one unit, and because unlike most military forces, they also knew literally how to shield whole regiments of soldiers from attacks, from in front or behind or even from overhead. Here's a picture to prove my point. This is often how the Roman army traveled as they got close to a city they were going to attack. It's called the Testudo Formation. They were very well protected. The Apostle Paul is saying to us, we need to shield each other. Much like that. With the shield of truth. With strong words of Scripture. By encouraging each other that we are victors in Jesus Christ. We're already victors. We've already won. Satan is already a defeated foe. Amen? He can't really do anything to us. We stand strong in Jesus Christ. We walk and we war in His might. Paul tells us in the end of verse 28 that our standing together, our striving together, our shielding each other gives us a confident victory 
He uses the word salvation or deliverance. And he says that at the same time that that confidence we have is a sign to our opponents. A sign of what? A sign that they're headed for hell. Now that's nothing to cheer about if somebody's going to hell. But what it means is that we're going where? Heaven. That is something to cheer about, right? Someday they're going down. Satan's already defeated. But someday we're going up to heaven. But along the way, there's one other step. Suffering. Not a real popular word. Not too many want to talk about suffering today. It's not a popular subject. Uh, We sometimes talk very glibly about it because we've never experienced suffering. At least I haven't. We don't know what it's like to be like Paul in prison for preaching the gospel. We don't know what it must have been like for the early church brothers and sisters who faced execution, were sent to the gallows, or burned at the stake, or they were packed into coliseums where they were uh, a meal for hungry lions, or where they became a defenseless target for gladiators with swords who used them as pin cushions while the crowd cheered. We don't know what that's like. We're getting a little glimpse of it today in our news as godly people, Christian brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing torture and execution. Praise God for their stand-up faith. In Paul's day, Roman citizens who followed the cult of emperor worship were expected if they went to a public gathering to sing or say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. And they would do that at these public events, much like we would sing the Star-Spangled Banner at one of our sports events. And there were many Christians, including many of them in Philippi, who said, I'm not doing that. They refused to worship Caesar and only wanted to worship the Lord. And it was a heavy price they paid for that kind of commitment. I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38. It's included in the faith chapter, and these people were men and women of faith, but here's what it says. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, And the writer says, these are men of whom the world was not worthy. Some wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. We don't know what that's like. We live in a country, praise God, where we have the freedom of worship anytime, anywhere. That may change someday. We may never face the kind of awful opposition that I've been describing. But in other ways, we may suffer for Christ. Whatever form that suffering, that opposition brings, we don't have to be intimidated by it. Because we're already 
according to Paul's words in Romans, more than conquerors through Him who loved us. If more serious suffering comes our way, and someday we have to put our life on the line, guess what? They're actually benefiting us. They're speeding up our journey. Putting us on rapid deployment to our home in heaven. Country singer Vince Gill recently wrote a song called Threaten Me With Heaven. And the chorus says, What's the worst that could happen? What's the worst thing they could do? Threaten me with heaven. That's all they can do. Good way to look at it, isn't it? James tells us that we can find joy in suffering when we realize that God has a purpose in it. Listen to James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul is making the same case to the Philippians and to us. We need to learn the same lesson. Someone said, and I agree with him, we are the only gospel some people will ever read. They're looking at our lives. They're wondering if we're going to stand strong, if we're going to strive together, contend for the gospel. They're wondering if we're going to shield each other and if we're going to, when suffering, give all the glory to God. If we follow these four steps, people will be reading the gospel of new life through us that can change their lives. But again, we have to take these four steps with humility, without being prideful, without the sense of, hey, look at me, look what I can do. Instead, look at my Savior. Look at what He can do through someone like me. You may already know, by the way, that in the original letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians and the other letters he wrote, there were no chapter headings or verse divisions. It was written out just like we would write a letter. We don't use chapter and verse divisions in our letters to each other. So really, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is still part of the same subject unity and joy in the Lord that we find in verses 27 to 30 because now we have a second practice and that is to accept the call to humility Paul starts uh, verse 1 with some awesome advantages to being in Christ and being united together because of him I want to look at them for a moment by the way most of our translations use the word if in verse 1, if there is encouragement, if there is consolation. The word really means since or because. Greek experts call this a first-class conditional clause. It's meant to be understood this way. If there is any encouragement, and there is, then here is how you are to react. Since we have these distinct advantages on our adventure with Jesus, unity is possible. And the gospel will go forth with power through us. 
We can be humble. We can see each other as equally valuable on this journey if we take time to ponder and praise God for these wonderful advantages that are ours. First of all, there is encouragement in Christ. Especially when suffering hits home to anyone in the family of God. Secondly, there's consolation. It's another comfort kind of word. When you console someone, you're trying to make them feel better about something that's brought them tears or sorrow. You're comforting them. This comfort is found in God, who is Himself love. The consolation of love. Paul doesn't mention the Father directly here in this middle phrase. He's already mentioned Christ. He's about to mention the Holy Spirit. But we believe that he's talking here about the love of God. God the Father. One reason we think that is because this follows the same uh, Trinitarian formula that we find in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 14. There it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty comforting, isn't it? The love of God and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there is encouragement in Christ. There is consolation in the love of God. And then thirdly, there is sweet fellowship brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And the result of God's wonderful display of all these advantages is that one more thing happens, and that is there is affection and compassion with each other. And these advantages are not just for the apostles or the elders or the deacons, the leaders of the church. They're for every believer. We are equally blessed to have these advantages from God. All of us can share them. There are no limitations. And also, there's no work involved in getting these advantages. God just pours them out to us. Here you go. Nothing we have to do to earn those. But also, there are no shortcuts to the humility that comes from understanding God has been good to me. God has blessed me. God has given me great advantages. Given us great advantages. So it starts with a recognition and an appreciation of the advantages God has graced us with. I can't earn these advantages, but I also can't ignore them and expect to practice humility. So secondly, these advantages lead to accomplishments. Specifically, the accomplishment of Paul's prayer and desire. He says, notice here in verse 2, Make my joy complete. I'd like to use a Clint Eastwood kind of phrase. Go ahead, saint. Make my joy. That's what he's talking about here. If you'll do these things, you will make me a happy man. I will be filled with joy. That's what Paul is really saying. You can put this brand, this motto, this company slogan, if you will, to the test, and you'll make my joy complete. Here's how. Have the same mind. Maintain the same love. Be united in spirit. And be intent on one purpose. 
Let's think through those four specifics as we uh, talk about this humble atmosphere that should be surrounding our journey through life on this adventure with Jesus. Our minds, first of all, need to be set on things above, not on things on the earth. It's so easy to set our minds on things on the earth. I don't even have television, but I got caught up yesterday in the Michigan-Michigan State game. I wish I hadn't have. Uh, I'm a Michigan fan, and the end of that game was a disaster. I was listening to it on radio over the Internet. Shouldn't have done that. It's so easy to set our minds on earthly things. But if we set our minds on things above, if that's our purpose together, to have our minds set on the right things, then God will fill our minds with the right things. And then also, He'll fill our minds with thoughts of His love for us. He'll fill our minds with thoughts of love for brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so that agape love of God, that kind of love that sacrifices and gives, not expecting anything in return, will benefit others and will keep us from thinking only of ourselves. And then he says, be united in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit, but in this inner man. This God consciousness that the Creator put within us. That means that we are to have a shared focus on our service for God. A focus no less grand than sharing the gospel with the lost around us and seeing them come to know Jesus Christ. All of that will lead to unity of purpose. That's Paul's ultimate goal here unity of purpose purpose, the purpose of reflecting the wonder and glory of the gospel. I have a book in my library, brought it out this morning, it's by Leslie Flynn, Flynn. it's called Great Church Fights, and in it he chronicles the way people in different churches go after each other, all in the name of Jesus Christ. One of the illustrations he uses in the book that I thought was great was uh, a young father who heard a commotion out in the backyard. And he looked out and his daughter and several playmates were arguing, a heated quarrel. When Dad intervened, his daughter called back and said, It's okay, Dad, we're just playing church. And unfortunately, uh, too many people are doing more than playing church with that kind of attitude toward each other. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the exact opposite. If we get sidetracked from unity and we just play church or play around at unity, pretend unity, another great church fight is going to break out. I'll guarantee it. We need to understand this kind of unity that Paul is talking about here. Unity in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, does not refer to organizational unity. What I mean by that is it doesn't mean that every church should belong to the same denomination. It doesn't mean that every church should belong to the same national organization like the National Council of Churches. That was a big deal 25, 30 years ago. You've got to belong to the NCC. No, that's not unity. Unity also doesn't mean that we believe exactly the same on every subject that the Scripture teaches. There are differences of 
opinions and views on some of those teachings. It also doesn't mean that we all have to sing hymns or that we all have to sing contemporary praise songs. I like to do both, don't you? We had some great songs this morning. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, here's what unity looks like. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects or results, but the same God works in all things through all persons. I like that. That's unity. God's way. Another book that I've been reading and our men have been studying on Saturday mornings is the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He says this on page 92. When God made us, His purpose was that we should love and honor Him, praising Him for the wonderfully ordered complexity and variety of His world, using it according to His will, and thus enjoying both it and Him. A huge part of understanding the complexity of God's creation is understanding that people, not animals or things, people are His greatest treasure. His greatest treasure. We're all uniquely His creation. We're all complex people, some more than others. We're all different by design. And if we understand that, it means that we then can help each other realize the value and honor that comes from being one of God's creation. Someone that God wants to use to do His will. If I have the attitude, I'm better than you. If I give off the attitude, I'm more important to God than anyone else here. Or you'll never be as valuable to God as I've been. We're going to dishonor God, the Creator. We're going to bring shame and disgrace to the family of God. So, finally, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, we need to have the right attitude. The others-minded attitude of Christ. He takes two verses to strongly emphasize that kind of humility. When Paul talks about humility here, he's not talking about a false modesty. He's not saying that we need to all walk around with a long face saying, I'm no good. I'm a nobody. It's not what he's talking about. That downplays the marvel of God's creation of you. We've probably heard the street expression, God don't make no junk. And that's true. His creation is beautiful. Everyone in here is beautiful to God. You're special to Him. But what it does mean is that we fight against, with every fiber of our being, this whole tendency towards self-interest, toward turning the attention on us, instead of on our Savior or on our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't overtly do this. I really don't think so. But it does come across as prideful sometimes. Even at the same time that we're trying to say we are others-minded. Ultimately, we are, if we'll admit it, secret self-admirers. Someone wrote this, and I thought this was so good. It's harsh, but it's good. Cards you'll never see at Hallmark. Looking back over the years that we've been together, 
I can't help but wonder, what was I thinking? (laughs) Or, I've always wanted to have someone to hold, someone to love. After having met you, I've changed my mind. (laughs) Or, we've been friends for a very long time. What do you say we call it quits? (laughs) We would never say something like that to another person. We might think it, but we'd never say that. But in the family of God, we need to say the opposites of those things. We need to let people know it is great to have us together in this work. All together. Paul tells us that being selfish or prideful is a waste of time. An empty pursuit. The King James says it's vain glory, self-glory. Empty self-glory. Again, it doesn't mean that we never think of ourselves. Notice verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own interests. I got to thinking about that. Jesus is our great example of humility, right? Jesus was God and man. As man, He needed to put His pants on the same way we do, men. So sometimes he would actually have to think about, what am I going to wear today? We think that way. He would also have to think, what should I eat today for lunch? There were many times he fasted, I know, but other times he thought those kinds of thoughts. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about thinking of others more than we would think of ourselves. Jesus was like that. He thought about His disciples. They were important to Him. He thought about the crowds who, as He said, were like sheep without a shepherd. And rather, Paul's point is, rather than being self-absorbed, rather than spending all of our time in me time, we need to give thought to others and how important they are to God and to us and to this church. And then we'll have a greater appreciation for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we'll have a passion for those not yet in the family of God who are sheep without a shepherd. One final illustration this morning. I told you... uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I guess I uh, wasn't quite accurate. All right. Let me finish with one illustration. It was Christmas Eve, 1910. General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was near the end of his life. His health was poor. He wasn't going to be able to attend the Army's annual convention. He'd become an invalid. His eyesight was failing. And most people, including Mr. Booth, didn't know that he would not see another Christmas. Someone suggested that he send a telegram to the rest of of the conventioners as a thank you and an encouragement for their many hours of labor ministering to people through the holidays and the cold winter months. Booth agreed to do it. But he didn't want to spend a lot of money on a telegram. So he decided he would send a one-word telegram. He thought long and hard about what one word he would use that would be an encouragement and help his brothers and sisters in the, in the Lord. 
When the de- thousands of delegates met, the, annou- the moderator announced that Booth would not be able to attend because of his health and that he would most likely soon be going home to see Jesus. Gloom and pessimism swept across the floor of the convention when the moderator said, I have a message from Mr. Booth. And he wants it read with the opening session of our con- convention. He opened the telegram and read the one-word message signed by General Booth. Others. That's a good motto, isn't it? But it's more than a motto. It's a lifestyle. And this morning as we close this service, I trust that this closing song will be true of all of us. That we're glad to be part of the family of God. Washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood, join heirs with Jesus as we travel the sod. Part of the family of God. If you know today that you're not part of the family of God, you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, that can change today. Right now, right where you are, I want to pray for you and then we're going to sing that song. Because right now, you can change that and you can become part of the family of God. And that song will have meaning for you. So please, everyone with your heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, just between you and God, if you realize today, I'm not part of the family of God, I haven't trusted Jesus as my Savior, I'm still in my sin, I want to know Him, I thank God that He died for me and rose again, I thank God for the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ, and I want that gift. If you pray that kind of prayer right now, right where you're seated, you will become part of the family of God. That's God's promise. Is there anyone like that this morning? Without anyone looking around, just slip your hand up and put it right back down if that's you today. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. Lord, thank you. Thank you for making us, by your grace, part of the family of God. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have great advantages. Help us to stand firm together and strive together for the gospel, shielding each other from the attacks of opponents. If suffering comes along, help us to stand with each other in that suffering and give you the glory. Thank you for the advantages we have. Thank you for the accomplishments that we can achieve that give all the glory and honor back to you. And and Lord, help us to have that attitude of others-minded service. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing with me. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God.